robots. Where do we even begin? Popular science fiction's been telling us what to expect from the future for so long. It's hard to see where the fiction ends and reality begins. So let's dip way back. Primitive robots, what people called automata, have been around for basically as long as mechanical clocks have. But while automaton may literally mean a self-moving machine, historically, their autonomy was mostly an illusion, one wound and driven by gears and springs. I mean, a clock doesn't really tell you the time, as if it even knows what time is, so much as it reflects back at you the time relative to the time you already told it back when you initially set the clock. Think about that. But human imagination is a powerful force, and it's not a huge leap from human-shaped moving clocks to thinking, feeling robotic beings that do chores and fight wars and just generally live like we do. And from here, the floodgates of autonomous humanoid robots pour forth an endless supply of cultural reference points. Rosie the Robot from the Jetsons, Data from Star Trek TNG, Daleks, Cybermen, Nanobots from Doctor Who, the Terminator from, well, the Terminator, Mech Warriors, Power Rangers, Transformers, wind-up toys, popular music, silly sound effects, that sad robot from The Hitchhiker's Guide. So much of my childhood revolves around these relationships with fictional robots, it's hard to know why I think or feel any of the thoughts or feelings I have about robots. Are they tools for good? Do they have consciousness, a conscience? Are they evil? Are they even capable of evil? Am I a robot? I can't count how many times I've clicked, I am not a robot, after identifying pictures of boats, crosswalks, or bicycles, only to be prompted to try again. Does my ability to fill out contact forms online make me a human? Or am I just a battery cell feeding energy into some massive singularity while I live in a surprisingly boring simulation of reality? Could I be a robot? Am I real because I think I'm a human? Do robots think they're humans? Shouldn't my simulation be more exciting? What is real? Okay, Shaw, we need to take a deep breath. We're going down the robot rabbit hole again. Breathe. And you know the whole simulation logic is a point of no return. That's true, Beth. Thank you. Thank you. You're real. I'm real. This podcast is real. Yes, this podcast is real. So let's just ground our robot talk for a second. Yes, the history of robots is rooted in fiction and illusion and, like you said, human imagination. In this century, robots have stepped out of our imagination, off the big screens, and into our living rooms, cars, homes. So we no longer need to imagine what a robot can do because we're living alongside them. We rely on them. Think about the Roomba. Babeth, lurking just below that peaceful, helpful veneer, there's a lot to potentially be afraid of, right? Think about it. You mentioned sci-fi. A sci-fi movie's most fundamental theme is good versus evil. The known in relation to the unknown. So a common storyline would be reckless, 
but well-intentioned innovation leads to a conflict between humanity and the technology that was meant to help us, but ended up deciding to hurt us. That fear revolves around the idea that one day robots will learn to outthink us and we'll lose the control we thought we had. Yeah, but robots are getting smarter and they can learn, which is why people fear them. No, do people fear robots though? I mean, like really? Sure, they can disappoint us in their actual limitations, but fear? I mean, do you fear your Roomba? Hmm. No. Well, that's a robot, and not fearing them is one of the themes we're going to explore in this very real, very robot-centric podcast. Yes. And what a perfect segue, Beth. Cue the theme music. Welcome to More Capable, a robotics podcast. I'm Shaw Flick. And I'm Beth York. In this three-part series, we'll journey through space and time. Cue the sci-fi music. And learn about the evolution of robotics and explore the promise of a future made more human by living with robots. Okay, wait a second. Sorry, you're saying robots will make us more human? Uh-huh. Huh. All right. All right. I'm hooked, but let me meditate on that for a second. Robots will make us more human. So technology frees us up to do the things we're good at or enjoy doing. Human things. Okay. I talked myself into it. Great. See? See how easy that was? Yeah, like, you know, mowing my lawn on <laughs> Saturday while I'm at the beach, right? Totally. Or, you know, in some cases, freeing us up to do really important work. Like saving the world, you know, from the beach. Exactly. And that's all well and good, which kind of leaves me pondering why my knee-jerk reaction is essentially fear. Basically every time. Even though I know, I know, I know. I don't fear my Roomba. Right. So maybe the place to start, which you already did in your monologue off the top, would be what we think about when we think about robots. Mm -hmm. And why we think it. Absolutely. I mean, we'll talk more about the fear or lack thereof as we go on. But there's a whole spectrum of feelings and reactions people have to robots. Like, how about this? Excitement or optimism or even something as simple as, I don't know, curiosity. What's the future going to hold? Like, I don't know. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. That's true. And when I stop and think about it, at my core, I'm so, 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 so curious and excited and, yeah, optimistic. Yeah, so tying that back in with your monologue, Shaw, why is it that we have so many feelings about something up until recently was mostly a product of our imaginations? Totally. Since robots have been in our imaginations, it's hard to separate not just the reference points, but how they shaped our vision of the future. Total feedback loop here. Since we're living in the future, and it's only kind of like we thought it would be, but we're still consuming old versions of the future we're not living in. That's deep, man. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I need to sit with you on that for a minute. <laughs> I'm like, whoa. <laughs> Sorry, not trying to blow your mind here, Beth. Yeah, my gosh. Okay. <laughs> All right. 
But, you know, it's not just like lay people like us who have this idea of the future that has been touched by fiction, right? So pretty much every roboticist and engineer we spoke to talked about how they first got interested in robots. And unsurprisingly, it was movies, books, TV, you know, just sci-fi in general. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sci-fi in general. Yeah. And, you know, we've mentioned Roombas a few times, right? In part because they're part of so many of our lives, but also because Roomba is an important step in the evolution of modern robotics. But the inventor of Roomba, Colin Engel, he's no different. In an interview he did with a STEM student during a mass robotics presentation in 2020 called Robot Stories, he had a pretty interesting and Roomba-esque response to the question, was there an early robot that influenced you? Was there an early robot that influenced me? I think the answer is yes, it was the movie Star Wars, but it wasn't R2-D2 or C-3PO um, because I, I, I didn't know how to build those, but there was this cool robot. It was about this big. It was called the MSC-6. It was on the Death Star. And, well, the Death Star was new and the Rebels were coming in to blow up the Death Star. And this robot showed the Stormtroopers how to get to the turbo lasers. And, and I had like, oh my God, that's useful. And it's simple enough that I could imagine building it. That's funny. A tiny helper robot is definitely not the Star Wars droid that comes into my mind. But I mean, it makes sense in the Roomba context. Yeah, but you're also not wrong. Most people probably wouldn't think about that in the same way as they would a humanoid robot. And that's not to say a robot is by nature a humanoid, but popular perception is important. For example, when we had a chance to catch up with Colin about robots, one of the interesting things he said was that when they first invented the Roomba, focus groups couldn't wrap their head around it being called a robot. So they actually settled on Autovac. <laughs> that doesn't have quite the same ring to it. No, but like we've been saying, the way we respond to the word robot is very particular and very influenced by pop culture. And the field of robotics has to work with that and tap into it. Is that a good thing or a bad thing that people can't separate the word robot from, let's say, R2-D2? I don't know, but it, it turns out it's not so cut and dry. When I spoke with Colin, knowing that he's a fan of Hollywood's depictions of how humans relate to robots, I went ahead and asked him to tease out some of those complications. Science fiction and the movies and books that we consumed oftentimes help, but sometimes really hold back innovation. And with respect to robotics, I think that it actually held back innovation by creating an incredibly high level of expectation as to what these things called robots really were. There was somehow a notion that a robot had to have legs and arms and have extremely high intelligence in order to qualify. And many, many people went down the path of trying to build a robot, starting with, okay, well, how do I make a balancing device? Which is actually really, really hard. Oh, I love that. Plus, you know, it makes sense. Yeah, Colin was a blast to talk with. Smart, funny, great perspective. He helped me understand the impact that fear has on people's perception of robotics, especially how we tend to imagine robotics in the shape of humans, as humanoids. It's easy to fear something we don't understand, but it's even easier to fear it if we see part of ourselves in it. Yeah, especially if we're seeing the worst parts of humanity potentially reflected back at us. 
Just the idea of a human or a human-shaped machine without any feelings or emotions, that's really scary. It's like a core fear in humans. But again, it's just an imaginary projection, right? It's not based on anything real. Right. And I can say I know or understand that, right? But most people, if you ask them, they'll say that they fear robots, even if it's not what they do in practice. We're kind of locked in this idea of humanoids, and even though most robots don't actually resemble humanoids, we still fictionalize them in our own image. Maybe that's why we have such a hard time stopping ourselves from going down the darkest rabbit hole of human cruelty when we think about them. Like we make them look like humans, then we dehumanize them, or at least never treat them like humans, and then they turn on us. That kind of makes sense, right? Well, let's ask Colin. Does anyone ever ask you about evil, sentient robots turning on humanity? And does that make any sense to you as a scientist and a businessman? Yeah, I mean, I I think that occasionally I get asked the, you know, the Terminator question. And and it's it's really quite entertaining for me because, my God, that's really hard to do. And by by the time we have a robot that knocks on your door and says, hi, I'm taking over, we're going to have so many weird or more challenging, more near-at-hand problems that we need to, to face. I mean, imagine as technology starts to, uh, well, continues to in- improve, you know, your daughter coming up and saying, uh, I'm thinking of having elective eye surgery and removing my eye and getting a robot eye um, because it will see better and I can read my books on my eye or you know, we're already doing cochlear implants for hearing. What happens when people have elective surgery to remove their current auditory system and replace it with a robotic one or neural connections where, you know, teachers have to say, unplug your computer from your mind before you take the calculus test. These are all very, might sound outlandish, but far more plausible challenges that we're going to have to face before we're faced with something uh, science fiction-y around androids taking over. So I think we have some time and other issues to, to worry about first. Wow, that's so Black Mirror, but real. It's so funny thinking about sci-fi in terms of pure practicality. Like, what comes first, the Skynet or the elective robotic eyeball replacement? <laughs> right. Those developments are arguably ethical or moral in nature, or at least based on society's priorities, which are kind of the fabric of moral ethical conduct. Well, and ethics or morality or or whatever we want to call it, we generally think of these as human constructs. So how are we applying, let's say, morals to a conversation about robots? Kind of in my estimation, you know, based on some searching and reading a lot of books, there are two common ways to think about it. First, there's moral thinking or actions on the part of the robots themselves. There's a philosophical bent to this, but the foundation of it comes down to fiction. That is, Isaac Asimov's Three Laws of Robotics. In his novel, I, Robot, he invented these laws, which basically stand in protection of the humans around any robot in question. So here they are. First, robots can't hurt people. Second, they must obey human orders. And third, Self-preservation is a must, so long as it doesn't interfere with the first two rules. Those seem very convenient for the humans. (laughs) (laughs) Right? They also, you know, they've never really informed any practical robotics, but popularly, we just assume that a humanoid robot has to live by some sort of humanoid code. It's kind of ridiculous if you actually think about it. Yeah. No, I'm thinking about it right now. (laughs) So what's the other way to think about the morality of robots then? 
Oh, yeah. That would be the moral use of robots by humans, or the idea that developing robotic technology is in the best interests of humankind, and therefore the moral choice is to innovate with a harmonious human-robot future in mind. Now, I'm not taking a specific moral position on robots, but I do believe, in spite of my knee-jerk fear reaction, that robots ultimately benefit humans. Right. So, we're essentially saying that in spite of what we think about when we think about robots, we're focusing on the not-evil applications of robotics. Exactly. And again, there are plenty of sci-fi examples of that kind of relationship between humans and robots. My touch point for technology and the human technology interface is Star Trek. Here's Jody Holtzman, Senior Managing Partner at Longevity Venture Advisors. I think Roddenberry is the master of presenting a vision of what I refer to is no learning curve technology. It just happens, right? You, you just speak and shit happens. You know, but think about it. I mean, going back to 1965, the first wireless communicator in uh, Lieutenant Uhuru's uh, ear. You had wireless communicators, uh, people were on, on their chests. Fast forward to uh, Next Gen uh, and Picard and the first tablet. He's in his ready room reading Shakespeare on a tablet. Uh, he's got 3D printing, making his Earl Grey tea. You know, he, he's got AR and VR on the holodeck. And he's got voice first technology and AI up the wazoo, you know, just talking into the air, computer, blah, 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 blah. And then there was Data this android named Data. I grew up on Star Trek, so I appreciate all of Jody's references here. And Data was always such a fascinating character to me. Yeah, me too. And of course, Data is an example of a more, I don't know, utopian vision of humanoid robotics. We like that, right? But we also can't ignore the scarier and more dystopian robot portrayals like Terminator Skynet, Blade Runner, the idea that ultimately robots are going to turn on us. Or the Matrix, you know, which you mentioned before, that taps into the notion of the singularity. Yeah, and while those seem like incredibly unlikely applications for robotics in reality, a really common assumption is that robots will, in the very least, steal our jobs or make us humans obsolete in the systems that we created. Right, but what's more likely than all that singularity fear is the idea of multiplicity, or the idea that robots will just improve our lives, which of course goes back to what Colin was saying about how people actually use robots in their lives. So maybe we need to fine tune our fear of robots a little, yeah? There's always some reason to be fearful of some types of robots in some situations, right? Like, like everything else, the, the devil's in the details. That's Adam Sachs, roboticist and CEO of Vicarious Surgical. As far as robots directly working with humans and impacting human lives, I think that we've all gotten fairly comfortable with. So much of our you know, computers are, are fairly automated. We all fly in airplanes on a regular basis that are entirely fly-by-wire, no physical connection between the pilots and, and the control surfaces on the airplanes. That, that's been true for quite a long time at this point, and, and I think almost everybody has flown in one of those planes uh, at this point. And we're starting to see that in, in cars and drive-by-wire cars as well that have 
significant autonomous features. Even if you're not in one of these, you're on the road around them on a regular basis today. So maybe robots aren't just in our imagination. They're a pretty prevalent part of people's lives. So why do we still hold on to all these presuppositions? Zach Zeridio from Value Creation Labs has some ideas. When I think about robotics in general, I think robotics needs a rebrand. And, and it's more similar to artificial intelligence and machine learning than I think a lot of people realize. Like robotics is sort of a, it's, it's an application uh, or applications of very advanced technologies that make things more efficient and help humans do their existing jobs better. I'm sure you can go and find instances where there are robotics sort of technologies that are eliminating some jobs. But you could say the same thing about different technologies across industries. Interesting. The idea that robotics should be thought of separately or as distinct from robots. Yeah, and that maybe we should, I mean, as podcast hosts, veer away from using the term robots when we're actually talking about robotics. That way we don't have the wrong connotations. I mean, and that's even inside my own simple brain. Oh, I agree 100%. (laughs) Robot is such a loaded term, in part because robotics is all around us, even if we don't notice it. So that's kind of an extension of the whole breaking away from humanoid form factors we already discussed. Indeed, that's the area where humanoid robots start to capture people's imagination and applications in human-centered environments started to gain more attention. That's Jing Xiao, head of robotics engineering at Worcester Polytechnic Institute. So the first consumer robot, you know, Roomba, was released by iRobot in 2002. Self-driving cars started to appear around 2005. Around the same time, the big dog robot was created by Boston Dynamics. So the public has begun to see more diverse forms and uses of robots and increase their imagination and demand for robotics. With the rapid advance of computing power, breakthroughs in vision perception with deep learning has further pushed forward intelligent robots. And the marriage of robotics with AI, with machine learning, has made the field very hot now. Okay, so robotics instead of robots, with an understanding that robots and robotics are all around us. Plus, as an industry, it's constantly growing alongside advances in tech. So it's not just a field of study, but products, businesses, markets, etc. You know, maybe now is a good time to start really defining what robotics can mean at a basic level, you know, before we get too fully immersed in the business side of it. Oh, yeah, good call. And we were lucky enough to speak with some total robotics rock stars for this podcast, including Fadi Saad, the VP of Strategic Partnerships of Mass Robotics, who broke robotics down for us like this. I like to put it in this simple equation. It's uh, actuation plus AI equal robotics. If you take AI out of it, so it's just automation. If you take the actuation out, so it's just uh, pure AI, where it could be like, uh, I mean, chatbots or robotic process automation or any of that. So uh, I think this is what defines uh, a robotics technology or a product. The other thing, it's it's, it's very complex. It's very complex, very difficult to create because of uh, the inherent difficulty to kind of do hardware and software and 
coordination and integration uh, involved in all of that. You know, that kind of reminds me of what Colin Engel said about humanoid robots and how difficult it would be to be able to get one to do something as conceptually simple as balancing upright. Yeah, you know, simple ideas are complicated to execute on in robotics, but Beth, I got to come clean about something. So the word actuation, which Fadi just throws out there like it's a totally normal robotics word, I, uh, I definitely had to look that one up. So for the sake of our listeners, could you save them a search query and just define it quickly? Yeah, and I have to admit, I also had to look it up. So of course, it's basically movement or what causes movement in a machine or device. Thanks, Beth. Uh, so robotics is actuation or movement and computer intelligence to trigger the movements or to give it purpose. That seems to make sense like in a bubble or like an environment without any variables. But I think about why I make movements personally. And a lot of it is just reactions to other things around me, right? Yeah, for humans, there's this sensation element to interacting with the real world. Which seems like it could be super useful for say a robotic device, right? Oh, absolutely. Jing Chao picks up where Fadi leaves off with his equation. Robotics is actuation and artificial intelligence. It has to also use sensing and perception, reasoning about the environment, information to make uh, more intelligent decisions. And that is very close to AI and, and the vast processing of data and computation algorithms are all computer science related. But it has a physical being. It is a mechanical and electromechanical system. So that's where the marriage forms. It has physical aspects. It has the computing and intelligent brain aspect <laughs> of a um, system. That makes robotics so fascinating. So speaking of fascinating, have you ever watched a Roomba roll around a room? Well, yeah, of course. It's like bumping into things, mapping spaces, getting stuck in corners, getting unstuck, making sure it doesn't fall downstairs. But it's sensing the world, kind of making sense of it. It's not making decisions per se, but it's definitely, I don't know, thinking? Yeah, you know, when I spoke with Colin about that, he expanded what Fadi and Jing said even further to include the world beyond the environment of the robotic device itself. You know, robotics is a toolkit of intelligence and sensors and actuators where, and it's also a comfort with building well-thought-out systems. This toolkit can help us solve some of the next great categories of problems that we need solved. Whether it be global warming or ocean plastics or bringing the rare expertise of a neurologist to a patient in need who is does not have physical access to this individual, bridging the concept of, of distance using robotic technology, or making our homes safer places to raise our families. I think robotics is an incredibly powerful approach to problem solving. I mean, it's about finding balance and being as passionate about what could you do with what should you do. And where things break are when cool wins over value. There's many, many robot attempts that are done as part of a very large company 
where these attempts are viewed as speculative blue sky, or they're funded in ways that are not results-oriented. You know, I'm grateful every day that iRobot was created in a crucible of daily peril. I went six and a half years never having enough money in the bank to make payroll at the end of the month, on the first day of the month. Six and a half years. We didn't have venture investment until year eight. The crucible of what can we do, how do we make money building robots, was so critically important to iRobot's success. I mean, I think it was unlikely and ungrateful every day that we survive long enough to get to a good answer in year 12. But if it's too easy, robotics is too hard to actually end up with a system that creates more value than it costs. And Roomba seems to be one of the first robotic devices to strike that balance of cost to value. And in doing so, kicked off a robotics renaissance, or dare I say, a robotics Roombasance? Uh, maybe not. But demonstrating that balance meant others entered the space and the pace of innovation picked up along with its practical applications. Right. And I actually found a funny quote from Colin about that on the Lex Friedman Robotics podcast. I was a high-tech entrepreneur building robots. But it wasn't until I became a vacuum cleaner salesman that we had any success. (laughs) And I remember the early 2000s. Technology was changing and kind of changing the world around it. Within a pretty short time span, consumer tech went from huge desktop computers to tiny itty-bitty wearables, creating the infrastructure for manufacturing supply chains for fast, cheap components. So suddenly, technology complications became less about robotic limitations than limitations of industries growing and devices shrinking. Yeah, I mean, just think about our phones. Like, what I carry in my pocket is exponentially more powerful than pretty much anything I used back then. And you know, the world's most famous vacuum salesman had a few things to say about that, too. Colin, how do you take advantage of changes happening in other seemingly not robotics-related industries, like, say, mobile phones, to advance iRobot's tech? The mobile industry has provided us with amazing new technology that we can leverage And it's a question of, well, what's a mobile problem and what's a a robot problem and how do we make sure we're invested in the right thing? Back when I started, voice recognition was a robot problem. Wireless communication was a robot problem. You know, touchscreens were robot problems. It It was, you know, we were the guys doing mobile technology because the idea of sticking all that into a handset was ridiculous. Well, the toolkit has gotten awesomely better. But having a great toolkit is not enough. And so my answer is, so what do we need? We actually need better business plans. There's still so many companies that are, you know, field of dream companies. If we only built the perfect general purpose robot, which only costs $4,922, the world would be a path to our door and everything would be fine. And that's not how entrepreneurship succeeds frequently, maybe every once in a while. But What we need more of is what's the problem? I've got this great toolkit, put a team together and and solve the problem using the robotic toolkit. And by doing that, we're going to see an acceleration of innovation in the space. 
Well, Beth, you know I can get behind pretty much any Field of Dreams reference. And <laughs> now imagining a robotics engineer with a $5,000 robot standing in a cornfield in Iowa waiting for the ghost of Mickey Mantle to show up and buy it. Yeah, I know. But meanwhile, because the components are so cheap, while that engineer is standing around in the field, all these real living people are out buying components and devices that actually solve problems they have. He could have saved a lot of money and time by focusing on the things people need, right? Yeah. And meanwhile, robotic devices are getting cheaper to make because of the accessibility of those components. Vicarious Surgical CEO Adam Sachs weighed in on that, too. So, you know, it really comes down to all of these technologies. Many of them have come out of, out of consumer electronics, right? We have, we have cell phone cameras. We have low-cost, incredibly high-quality cameras that are tiny, that can be put on the end of a stick or in a pill like in our system that cost, you know, $10, $20 and end up with 4K and beyond, high-fidelity, excellent color, excellent low-light sensitivity, all off the shelf. This used to cost $100 million plus to develop something of less quality. And we can now leverage the fact that companies like, like Sony have spent, I don't know, but probably you know a billion dollars developing all of this incredible tech camera technology that we can literally buy off the shelf. So if you pair the lower cost of those components with cheap server space in the cloud, you've got complex data feeding into computers that have the power to make sense of them. That sounds a lot like what we talked about before, right? It sounds simple enough, but it's probably really, really complex. Yeah. Fadi Saad of Mass Robotics, who talked with us about the complex nature of robotics before, brought up the nature or inevitability of that complexity. There is um, uh, a famous um, system thinker. His name is Ashby. And that's Ross Ashby. And Ashby, back in the 60s, he came up with a law and he said that only complexity can absorb complexity. So as we are making our world more and more complex, we have to create these complex robots and complex AI to help us manage this complexity. So unfortunately, there is no way around. We have to create these AI and robotics to manage the complexity that we are basically creating for ourselves. Huh, that's interesting. Like. When I think about it, and we, like we've already talked about this, we think about movement, processing, and sensation as the foundation of robots. Really, I'm just trying to translate how I exist in the world as a human to how that could play out in a machine. So a movement or thought that just kind of happens for me, we could see that play out for a machine. And then we can see just how complex it is based on what code it takes to drive that robotic action or thought. <laughs> Weird. Right? <laughs> and that's just the back-end complexity. But the user interfaces and just basic interactions are getting simpler. Think of the Roomba you described earlier, bumping into things. And it's just using that movement to get an understanding of the space while you control it in a super logical app. So the front end allows the user's understanding of it to be simple, even though the technology is complex. And that's just the beginning of how we interact with robots. Whereas in the past we worried about killer robots coming from the future, form factors are moving beyond humanoid and into what end users actually want. So physical sizes are reduced, task level automation is commonly accepted, and we're not sitting around expecting a Rosie the Robot humanoid assistant to be wandering around our home. Yeah, so going back to the feel the dreams thing before, instead of making solutions to imaginary problems, 
a lot of practical robotics comes down to just asking the right questions and knowing what problems we actually want to solve. Exactly. WPI's Jing Chow talked with us about breaking down those big, needlessly complex solutions to make the applications more useful. The way to handle complex problems is to try to do divide and conquer and try to come up with a set of simpler problems to solve. We need to, to think of uh, uh, clever ways to reduce complexity of the overall problem by less complex sub-problems, but work together in an integrated sense. Well, as an example, I think a big question, can robots provide both safe and effective physical assistance to a person? Say, pulling a patient from bed and placing him or her on a wheelchair. This is a very complex problem. But should we have multiple robots of different forms to achieve that cooperatively rather than a humanoid robot? That really is the question. And in robotics, we do a lot of the different forms of robots work cooperatively to achieve a more complex goal. Robotics is very hot, it's very fun, and people kind of romantize the, the idea of robotics. But a lot of work requires you to make progress step by step. Still, to solve smaller problems and build on top of the smaller uh, solutions to accomplish bigger tasks. Achieve that cooperatively rather than a humanoid robot. That reminds me of something Colin said in our conversation that's kind of a layperson's way of understanding problem solving in robotics. The world has enough thermonuclear skateboards. If we could actually build something for, you know, $129 that brought you a beer, you might buy it. <laughs> that's amazing. I might rather have $129 worth of beer, but, you know, I catch his drift. <laughs> right. Make things that people will use every day, not just really cool and practical ideas. Totally. Okay, so let's summarize what we've just talked about because it's kind of a lot. Um, robotics is a hot field right now, and it's a convergence of a bunch of social and technological developments. Right. Supply chains work more efficiently. Hardware is more affordable. Cloud computation and data processing are everywhere, so you don't need a supercomputer to do complex operations. And on the end user side of it, we have better interfaces and a general flexibility in terms of form factor. Exactly. Better robotics solving real problems. And as these problems become bigger, the more we need solutions that don't detract from A, our ability to do other important tasks, but also B, the ability to live a happy and fulfilled life. It comes down ultimately to what we talked about at the top. Robots help us be more human. Ooh, nice callback. Yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. It's almost like I had it planned all along. Hmm? <laughs> and actually, Colin had something pretty insightful to say about that, too, which I've been holding on to for just the right moment. Take it away, Colin. I think that humans' lives in many ways are decreasingly human because we don't have the time to do it all. We try to pack more and more into every second just maintaining our worlds is virtually impossible, much less having a moment to read a book, to craft and invent an idea or, or build something amazing, go for a run. And, and as I look at what robotics has to offer, I think robotics has the opportunity to humanize the world 
by helping to bear the burden of some of the necessary but not necessarily enriching activities in our daily lives. So I think it is going to play an incredibly important role if we can create this clear partnership of, okay, I trust my robot to do that, I'm going to do this. If we don't do the normal thing and with time we just fill it up with more churn, but take the opportunity to, to really enjoy the gift of time that technology is giving you, we're going to create a, a better world. You know, Beth, if you just played that at the beginning of the episode, could have saved me a lot of missteps in my understanding. Oh, I don't know, Shaw. I'm glad we're waiting until the end of the episode because it leads right into the next logical step we're going to take. Oh, yeah? What's that? He asks like he doesn't already know. (laughs) Well, since we're talking about creating a better world for humans, the next logical step is how robotics can assist in human health. Ooh, I like it. And I have my very own clip here to help us take that next step because roboticists are typically optimists problem solvers. And here's a quick rumination by Fadi Saad on the impact of hope. It's good to have hope. It's good to have long vision. It's good to have dreams that one day we'll be able to create this humanoid kind of companion. uh, And hopefully it wouldn't uh, turn on us and become uh, terminator. Uh, But again, this is another (laughs) problem that we need to worry about. But um, I think we need to think about, okay, what are the the challenges that we have today that we need to solve with robots? It breaks my heart when we have so much technology, yet uh, a tiny, tiny virus like the COVID-19 just, I mean, screw our life for a whole year. Oof, yeah, what a gut punch. Well, maybe next time something like COVID-19 happens, we'll have some robotics technology to help us. That's definitely something to ponder, but for now, it's time to say farewell. Okay. Until next time, I'm Beth York. And I'm Shaw Flick. Thanks for joining us on this first episode of More Capable, a robotics podcast. And stay tuned for episode two, where we'll explore how roboticists are inventing the future of human health and making us, wait for it, more capable.